0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society.
2: an achievement, the capturing of the world airspeed record by the Ferry Delta Two, exactly 50 years ago. But before I introduce the speakers and we get on to those proceedings, uh, Peter Twist has a presentation to make to the Society of a check to the National Aerospace Library. Could I invite Peter to come up and uh, Keith Mans to receive the check?
3: Um,
4: all right, I'll do that. I think
5: i right. cheque.
6: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to thank uh, uh, the, the 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 reunion, ferry uh, reunion, where I think this is this cheque has come from, uh, for this very kind donation of a thousand pounds. I can tell you how much it is because I've just seen it. Um, and say, I just really wanted to say two things. First of all, we, some of you, when you came in the front entrance, the more observant amongst you, may have noticed a little plaque on the front door, which now says, the home of the National Aerospace Library. And we officially did that uh, on the occasion of the Sopwith lecture last week. So it's it's only a small step, but it's a small step in the right direction. And what that does demonstrate is the Royal Aeronautical Society's commitment to work with other organisations in the UK to preserve our heritage in terms of our archive and our library material so it isn't lost to posterity. Because quite often it normally takes 50 or 100 years after something has happened for us in this country to realise what we've lost. And we've just done it a bit quicker this time. We've already taken possession of four collections which are housed at the moment down at Farnborough, all of which, I believe, are of national significance. So I'm not asking you all to give me any more material just yet, because space is still limited. But I want you to know that the Society has a project that will go on many year, for many years, but will hopefully guarantee that our aerospace heritage, in terms of the archive material, I'm not interested in artefacts, that's for museums. Our archive material is protected and made available for those that wish to see it. Now, that's a pretty short speech for a politician. I've just got one other thing to do. Anyone that gives over £50 pounds, uh, gets a tie. It's a free tie, provided you make a donation. <laughs> well, the, the, the donation was well more, much more than £50, pounds, so I'm going to give a tie to Peter, the National Aerospace Library tie. I have to tell you, although you, you gave a £1,000, you only get one tie. Because <laughs> in the small print, it says... £50 and over. (laughs) A point that I made on an earlier occasion in 2003, where we had an earlier tie, where Gordon Page said, Cobham has given £30,000. How many ties do I get? And I said to Gordon, you of all people should know to read the small print in the contracts. Anyway, thank you very much indeed. Thank Thank you all very much.
3: Money was collected from uh, uh, some ex-ferry aviation personnel, mostly retired, and uh, although a small amount may have come from me, the whole lot didn't. But I'm sure it'll be put to very good use.
2: Thank you. And now to the business of the evening. As I say, this, this evening is to celebrate a British aviation achievement. And winning a speed record is very much a team effort. And we are incredibly lucky this evening to have four members who can talk about the different contributions to that achievement which none of them could have achieved on their own. It needed the efforts of everybody, and more people who are not here tonight, to make it happen. We have four speakers, and I will introduce each of them before they speak, and then we'll have a general discussion after all four have spoken. So we're going to start with John Fairey. John is son of Sir Richard Fairey, the founder of Fairy Aviation Limited. John qualified as an engineer and then became a professional airline pilot. He's owned and flown a Spitfire and also had an airworthy Fairy Flycatcher replica built, an aircraft which is now in retirement at the Fleet Air Arm Museum. John continues to take a keen interest in the history of the Ferry Aviation Company and is going to set the background to the record achievement. John.
7: Well, good evening, everybody. It's very good to be here. Um, Today, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary what was really a quite extraordinary achievement. Basically, for barely 50 years after the first ever powered flight, the Ferry Aviation Company built an aircraft which not only comfortably exceeded 1,000 miles an hour, was completely controllable at such speeds, as was very convincingly demonstrated by its ability to fly within the very strict limits laid down by the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale for the setting of a world speed record. And what makes the achievement even more extraordinary is the fact that the FD2 was made by a company which at that time had no experience of transonic, uh, let alone supersonic flight. Fairies were, in fact, an extremely innovative company. In a way, it's possibly ironic that its best-known product is a legendary but, of course, very conventional swordfish. Just a few examples of the company's pioneering products are, first of all, the Fox, Fairy Fox, which was the first streamlined bomber and built in the mid-1920s and capable in those days very comfortably outperforming all contemporary fighters. Uh, there was a the long-range monoplane which in 1933 took the world's long-distance record by flying from Cranwell to Walvis Bay. There was the Hendon, which was the RAS first monoplane bomber. There was a remarkable P-24 engine, I don't suppose... Uh, Many of you knew that ferries, in fact, at one time tried to get into the engine manufacturing business. And the P-24 was the culmination uh, of their engine um, development. And it was a two-in-one engine, in other words, it worked similarly to the double mamba, which had preceded by over ten years. And then, of course, the Gannett, that was another very innovative aircraft which made use of the double mamba. There was the post-war uh, range of Notar helicopters, which culminated in the Rotodyne, and, of course, there was the FD-1, the pre- predecessor of the FD-2. Uh, so should I should be able to get you a picture of One button. That should have been up before, sorry. And that's me, and there we get to it. Um, after the war, ferries were asked by the Ministry of Supply to do some w- research work on um, vertical, uh, vertical take-off fighters, which, of course, they started doing with models some of these vertical take-off fighters, believe it or not, were going to be used on ships, which I don't mean aircraft carriers, I mean sort of ships of frigate size, and that, uh, I must say, led to some pretty bizarre ideas about how these aircraft were recovered. Um, Obviously, a full-scale flying research aircraft was going to be necessary in the end of this research, was to be taken to a logical conclusion, and that was the FD-1. The FD-1 had a Derwent engine, and uh, this was to be supplemented by booster rockets to achieve the vertical takeoff. Not surprisingly, the ministry lost interest in vertical takeoff, and uh, of the three FD-1s um, ordered, only one was completed, which first flew in 1951. Now, perhaps unnecessary to say, but unfortunately, unlike its successor, uh, the FD-1 didn't really look right, and in practice, it proved pretty difficult to fly. I only saw it flow once, I saw it fly at a Farnborough air show, and the thing that really stuck in my mind was the incredible rate of rolls the thing achieved. Following the Ministry's uh, loss of interest in vertical take-off fighters, uh, the programme obviously didn't have high priority, and in fact the aeroplane only flew about 25 hours or so in its five years of existence. It came to an end when in 1956 uh, it landed wheels up at Boscombe Down uh, due to an undercarriage malfunction, It wasn't actually badly damaged, and it could quite easily have been repaired. But unfortunately, uh, it was instead taken to shoebriness and used as a gunnery target, which is a pretty sad end, really. Now, um, for quite a long time, as probably many of you know after the war, uh, research in this country into supersonic flight was done using models because it was decreed, again, in official circles that um, supersonic flight was too dangerous for for, uh, pilots to indulge in. However, a lot of ground was lost during this period and when it was eventually realized that this was not going to be a very profitable avenue of development, a specification ER ER-103 for supersonic research aircraft was issued. Um, Ferry's response was the FD-2, which first flew in October 1954. And to my mind, arguably, that is probably the most beautiful aircraft that was ever built. Up to the 14th flight, Uh, testing progressed quite smoothly. On the 14th flight, the aircraft was very nearly lost. Um, The engine stopped due to fuel starvation and the aircraft was only saved by extremely skillful flying um, which brought it back to Boscombe where it landed with the undercarriage partially retracted. The repairs, plus a few modifications, took about nine months to put into place. Uh, One of the modifications, by the way, was a a, a ram turbine, so should such a misfortune ever occur again, at least the uh, pilot would have adequate supply of hydraulic pressure to enable him to control the aircraft down to the ground. When the, um, the test program was resumed, speed steadily increased, and it became obvious that the world speed record, which then stood at 822 miles per hour, was held by a super saver, could very easily be broken. Supported by my father decision was taken to go for the world speed record and this was despite distinct lack of enthusiasm of the Ministry of Supply and advice believed or not from Rolls-Royce that their Avon engine would not be up to the job. Now, as you all know the record was obtained. Obtaining it was not only in fact an extraordinary engineering achievement but also it was a, care- a classic demonstration of careful planning and highly accurate flying. It, uh, the FT2 had to be flown extremely tight limits required by the FAAI without the benefit of either autopilot or a flight director, any form of auto-stabilisation, nor did the aeroplane carry any navigation equipment. Our recognition must also be given to those who recorded and verified the record-breaking flight. No mean feat, I might say, to track an aircraft flying at well over 1,000 miles an hour and well over 35,000 feet using the equipment available at the time. That it was not easy, I think, was demonstrated by the fact that actually seven attempts were necessary before the record could be verified. As I said before, the Ministry of Supply was not supportive of the record attempt. Uh, ferries had to pay most of the cost itself, which is not hardly something you can imagine um, happening in the United States. I mean, can you imagine Bell's paying for the B-29 that carried the X-1 up before it could be launched <laughs> supersonically? Um, quite extraordinary, really. Happily, both FD-2s survive. Um, on with the pictures. Um, the record breaker, that's the WG-774, was fitted with these ogey wings, let's say that, uh, for researching the aerodynamics of Concorde. And uh, it did this very successfully. Um, and the aircraft is actually now with the Fleet Air Arm Museum at Yeovilton. The other aircraft, WG-777, which was not modified, it's still an FD-2, and that is now in the RAF Museum, Cosford, amongst the absolutely splendid collection of British post war research aircraft which they have there. And if you haven't done so, I advise you all to go and see that. Now, um, encouraged by the RAF, uh, Ferries attempted to capitalize on the success of the FD2. And Air Marshal Harold Bird Wilson, who was then a wing commander and deputy director of flight operations, Bracket fighter, flew the FD2. And I'm just going to read you the recommendation in his report, which he compiled to the Air Ministry, quite a lengthy report. He said, It is my considered opinion that if the Royal Air Force is to have an adequate fighter force for the nineteen sixty era, then a, a decision must now be given to the Ferry Aviation Company to proceed as quickly as possible into the material phase of producing an aircraft that will have the desired all round performance to meet the threat for this period. Surely fairies have proved everyone by the FD2 that they have the technical know-how and the engineering skill to produce the next breed of fighter for the Royal Air Force. Unless this firm is given the go-ahead immediately, it will once again be a case of too little, too late. Well, never a true word spoken or written, I must say. Incidentally, Bird Wilson knew quite a lot about fighters. He'd flown them operationally with distinction during the war. Now, altogether, fairies produced three proposals for fighter developments of the FD-2. The first proposal, ER ER-103-C, was simply a single-seat development of the FD-2, but powered by a gyron engine. The next two proposals were responses to the very demanding F-155T specification, which was a two-seat all-weather fighter capable of uh, intercepting a bomber travelling at Mark II at 60,000 feet. I remember we are talking about something that happened in the 1960s, late 50s. Um, That is a a picture of one of the two uh, aircraft they designed uh, in response to this specification. That was an aircraft powered by a gyron, uh, backed up by two rocket motors, and um, that weighed in at about 30,000 pounds. The other one, a bigger airplane, which weighed in at 50,000 pounds, was powered by two RB128 engines. Now, both the, all these versions, in fact, all three of them, would have been capable of speeds well in excess of Mark II and be capable of reaching altitudes in excess of 60,000 feet. <clears throat> On the 1st of April 1957, fairies were told there was uh, almost certainly that they were going to get the F-155T order. That, however, was an April Fool's joke. On the 4th of April 1957, the defense white paper came out which amongst uh, its uh, ideas was that there would be no uh, manned interceptors for the RAF after the English electric lightning. And that was the end of the project. However, the FD2 lives on in another form. Nowadays, it's called the Mirage. And there we have it. Um, <clears throat> old Marcel Dassault was reputed once to have said, if you British did things properly, uh, you would have built the Mirage yourselves. Well, some 2,000 copies down the road, he could afford to be uh, magnanimous about it all. Now, I have to say, I know of no proof that the Mirage III was just a straight crib of the uh, FD-2. However, the shapes of the two aircraft are so similar that, um, frankly, coincidence is really unlikely. It is actually quite extraordinary that successive British governments have thrown away the opportunities presented over the years by aircraft such as the FD-2, such as the Rododine, to mention another fairy product, the V1000, and of course a bubble TSR2. And uh, we can only hope now that one day a future British government will realise that we can't really survive in this country just by being nice to tourists and selling each other insurance policies. <laughs> and hopefully we'll once again support our aircraft industry, not just with words, but with deeds. I hope that I live to see it, but in, uh, as we say in Hampshire, fine words butter no parsnips. Thank you. you.
2: John, thank you very much for that splendid introduction to the project. Our next speaker is Harold Colliver. Harold began his career in the aircraft industry in 1935. He was appointed as designer in charge of the FT-2 and saw the aircraft through all its design stages, outline and detail, and remained with the ferry aviation company until the aircraft was completed and flown. He subsequently resigned owing to lack of government support and contracts for the company. Harold, could you tell us about the design of the
8: aircraft?
9: Uh, Ready? Is this? Can they hear at the back well enough? With this? They should be.
2: If anyone can't hear, could you wave and we'll get the volume turned up. Yeah, I think you could just speak to the mic. Uh,
9: okay. Good evening, everybody. In 19, 1925... I designed and built aeroplanes with slick cane, a bit of silk, and a bit of elastic to drive the propeller. In 1935, I completed an engineering apprenticeship at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, and I joined the Ferry Aviation Company. The first job they gave me was to design the retractable undercarriage for the Ferry Battle Aircraft. In 1949, I was appointed designer in charge of an aeroplane, single engine, delta wing, capable of flying at supersonic speeds. I prepared the um, general arrangement drawings and a simple brochure for submission to the Ministry of Supply. What did that do?
5: Just changed the picture. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and in
3: 1950,
9: <coughs> the company was given a contract for two aircraft to meet a specification ER one o three. And they were numbered WG774 and WG777. The specification called for the aeroplane to be capable of flying at substantially supersonic speed. I was unhappy about this and requested a more specific uh, statement in the contract. I suggested we should agree to design for Mach 1.3 and achieve not less than Mach 1.1 that was accepted by the ministry now it was necessary to finalise the shape of the fuselage especially the front end I heard that um, NPL had a high speed wind tunnel capable of testing models up to supersonic speeds So I had a talk with them. They were very helpful. And I asked if they could give me some information, data, whatever you like to call it, to help in the design of the front end of a fuselage. Because I thought that was the critical part in any case. With the uh, information which they supplied, I had to change the point. It was much more pointed than I had envisaged, and rather longer in front of the cockpit. This created problems because um, the pilot view over the nose with a Delta aircraft when it's taking off and landing, taking off about 7 to 10 degrees and landing about maybe 10 to 12 degrees. He couldn't see the runway. So this was a bit of a problem. I didn't want to raise the height of the canopy because that would only cause a serious disturbance of airflow over the body and probably reach the fin and rudder, which would cause instability. Um, So, using the NPL fuselage was longer view over the nose wasn't acceptable for the pilot so this was quite a problem so I arranged to discuss this with Herbert Chaplin who was our chief designer at that time we had quite a long discussion as to what we could do I suggested maybe we could hinge the front of the fuselage forward of the cockpit uh, so that it could be lowered by about 10 degrees. Um, But after our discussion, the outcome was that we would lower the nose, including the cockpit. This created a bit of a problem, because it meant an additional bulkhead, and it meant, of course, uh, hydraulic control to unlock it, lower it, raise it back again, and lock it. also, of course, with high speed, we knew that the cockpit uh, would become quite warm, possibly hot. Um, So I arranged a meeting with the Institute of Aviation Medicine at the RAE Farnborough. They were most helpful. We discussed what was necessary. And they gave me information on temperature, pressure, humidity and a complete change of atmosphere in the cockpit every five minutes. That was considered necessary to keep the pilot comfortable and alert. So with that information I produced the specification for the air conditioning equipment. That was passed over to one of our design specialists and um, gave them a chance to sort out the equipment that would be necessary because air conditioning in aircraft at that time was quite novel. And they made a start on designing the units and the installation. The fuselage itself was to be circular. I didn't want any distortion away from circular because keeping it circular meant a nice even flow pattern all the way around with no disturbance until of course you come to the canopy. But we kept that as low as we could. The main structure of the fuselage was circular frames and quite orthodox structure really circular frames and longitudinal structural members of course there were special frames for joining the wing from side to side and those those frames would be Machined from forgings, aluminium alloy forgings. The rear fuselage, complete with the fin and rudder, would be uh, removable so that the um, jet pipe and the engine could be removed the engine would run on rails inside the fuselage. Uh, And the cockpit would have, of course, an ejector seat. And the standard seat at that time, which had been designed and developed by Martin Baker, wouldn't fit the cockpit space we had allowed. So I had a meeting with Jimmy Martin and he agreed to modifications to keep it within the profile we gave him. And he did very well. The other problem would be the canopy. If the pilot had to get out in an emergency with the ejector seat, of course, he's got to get the canopy out of the way. There's always a risk that the canopy may lift and go across the cockpit. So I decided we should make sure it couldn't do that. And I had two rails, one each side, extended back behind the bulkhead, and the canopy was mounted on those rails. The back end of the rails were fastened into the structure and the fuselage. The front end had a mechanical device so that when the pilot the pilot did decide to get out, he would release the front end, spring plungers would lift it so far, and then it would have to go up high enough before it released at the back end. So that I was quite sure then that the hooding would be clear of the pilot's head before he had to eject Now, the wing of delta plan form would have a span of about 27 feet and a thickness cord ratio of 4%, which meant it was a very thin wing. But, of course, adjacent to the fuselage, the cord was quite long. So we still had a wing thickness of somewhere around 12 inches just efficient to house the undercarriage when it's retracted plus a small blister on the door underneath. The main spars would be at right angles to the fuselage centre line and again would be machined from forgings. This... Oh, and... A bulkhead at the inner end, a complete bulkhead at the inner end, and another one at the outer end of the spars, which were about two thirds of the span out from the centre. So that we had a very stiff structure across the from one wing to the other. And I decided this was necessary because there were suggestions by some of the top aerodynamists at the time that going through the sound barrier may cause serious vibration and may cause instability. I don't know whether they were right or wrong but decided I should have that in mind when we were making our decisions. Um, the surface, the uh, wing surface, upper and lower, would be approximately 6mm thick aluminium alloy. This area would then be sealed with a sealing compound to carry the fuel on each side. Together with uh, a collector tank in the fuselage, it was about three hundred twenty gallons, and that's not very much fuel when you realise that um, the rate of flow with full read is pretty terrific. Let's see if I ever got to. Oh yes, the, the outer wing, that's the outer third of the wing, would be orthodox construction with ribs, stringers and skin, of course, and the same with the leading edge. That would be orthodox uh, structure. The engine air intakes were close into the side of the fuselage, forward of the leading edge, and of sufficient length before they reached the engine to try and present the engine with a smooth flow across the front surface. Rolls-Royce were rather particular about this because of the possibility of instability in the compressor. But after experiments we managed to get a decent flow across the front of the engine. And The trailing edge would be all moving controls. Quite large area because we had to make sure that uh, we could control the aeroplane at low speeds for landing. And with the delta wing you can see that the control surfaces, certainly the elevators, were not all that far back from the centre of gravity. So we had to have a, a good area to give the pilot adequate control at the low speed. At high speed, of course, he only needed a movement of one or two degrees for full control. So uh hydraulics division or hydraulic specialists they devised um, oh, a ratio a ratio type valve which meant that normal control column movement on the elevators would still give the pilot what he needed even though the movement of the controls was only one or two degrees and that variable ratio valve did the job very well let's see what else the undercarriages would be mounted on the front spar and would be retracted inward and forward so that the wheel was in about the thickest part of the wing So apart from a small blister on the door underneath they were really inside the wing. Oh the front leg uh, the front leg would have twin wheels and would retract rearwards. So that the on the ground the aircraft would be at a Wing incidence of about 5 degrees. The fin and rudder would be fairly orthodox construction and the leading edge would be swept back to 60 degrees. And of course the rudder would be power hydraulic power driven by hydraulics system (coughs) and uh, the normal um, pedals, left and right, rudder pedals in the cockpit. And below the rudder, there would be a circular housing for tail parachutes to help uh, reduce the speed on landing. And under the fuselage at that point, there would be a pad to try and prevent damage to the rear fuselage if the approach angle was a bit steeper than we wanted. The Rolls-Royce RA8 engine was to be developed by Rolls-Royce to give us about 10,000 pound thrust whereas at that time it was only giving about 8,000. So they had quite a bit of development to do. But it was going very well. And I did see an engine on the test bed producing 10,000 pounds thrust. So they were getting on very well with it. Then we add to that after burning of about 2,500. So we had total of about 12,500 pounds of thrust available and that was about equivalent to the weight of the aeroplane at that time. Unfortunately the weight did go up a bit with uh, the extra bulkhead for the nose and the few other items. Um, So the the weight did creep up a bit but fortunately Rolls-Royce were doing very well with the development and they got the engine up to 10,500 Um, and with two and a half thousand pounds thrust we had a lot of thrust but they were developing variable reheat as they called it I had many meetings with Lombard who was chief development engineer and it was obvious to me that they weren't making very good progress with the variable reheat with full reheat and full engine power, the speed would go above what we decided to be the limit because we put it up from 1.3 initially to design for 1.5 when we knew Rolls-Royce were doing so well with thrust with a maximum of one point, Mach 1.7. But since we were now saddled with engine power plus reheat I decided we would have to find some way of controlling the speed because with that of thrust it would accelerate very quickly and might go beyond the speed limit we had set of 1.7 so I said right we could do this by making the back end of the fuselage in the form of four petals they came out in petals hydraulically operated, so if the pilot needed to control the speed, he could select the pedal brakes, which would help keep it below the maximum (laughs) 1.7. Oh yes, the engine was then called the RA-14 and by the time we got round to first flight date the development had gone on a bit further and it was then RA-28 I think it was well there isn't time in an evening like this to go into all the details so I've only given you a resume really of the sort of problems we had to deal with and with the excellent development of the engine and we had a very good design team at Ferry Aviation at that time, very good specialist designers, technicians and draftsmen and they were They started work on it as soon as I could give them the guidance in what should be done, what I thought should be done. And they did very well. We started the series design early 1950. And by 1952, a whole lot of the structural items had been drawn and issued for manufacture. So things were going very well. And... 1954, the aircraft was completed and was taken out to Boscombe Down. And um, from then on, it was a question of test flying, which was not my problem.
10: (laughs) Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Harold. It's very rare to hear a designer tell you how he actually designed an aeroplane. I think this was a real eye-opener to me and I'm sure to many of us. So, having an aeroplane designed and built, it needs a ground crew to fly it, as well as a pilot. And Norman Parker was a member of the ground crew during the record attempt, he started his career in aircraft servicing with Vickers Armstrong and then Supermarine before moving to Boscombe Down and then on to Ferries. Um, he subsequently went back to Boscombe, but in this talk he's going to tell us about servicing the aircraft during the record attempts and the particular challenges that it caused. Norman.
11: First word, is follow that. <laughs> Harold was telling me the other day that he was involved with the Spitfire, designing the Spitfire and getting the Spitfire accepted for spinning trials, which is something I certainly knew nothing about. I'm um, only the chairman of one of their groups of the Spitfire Society. But Never mind. I won't hold that against him. But you never know where your information is going to come from, do you? Uh, he mentioned um, at length the, uh, the, cord, the 4% cord wing. Uh, brings to mind something, when we were at Farnborough, um, everybody knew this new aeroplane's got a 4% perform- uh, cord wing. And um, somebody came up to the crew, who was standing there with their white ovals, looking quite bright around this new aeroplane. And someone said, uh, excuse me, is this is the aeroplane with the 4% cord wing. And they looked him straight in the eye and he said, no, it's all light, have I? It wasn't the answer he expected, but uh, (laughs) it didn't get his wrist slapped, but it was a good answer. Now, the aeroplane itself was a very successful aeroplane. Tiny, very, very tiny. As Harold has said, the uh, ejector seat had to be specially modified. Uh, The main modification was removal of the the, the normal raising and lowering seat mechanism, because there's no room in there. The pilot's head was already on the cockpit roof anyway. So there's no point in putting le- uh, raising and lowering equipment into it. So that made the, the seat peculiar. It was a Mark III seat, but it was peculiar to the Delta II. The aeroplane itself was quite successful. Uh, in fact, you know, we never did anything to it. I mean, I, mean, I really do mean that. When that aeroplane flew, all we did was land it. Peter landed it. Um, tacked it up to uh, dispersal. And we refueled it, and took off again. It's as simple as that. Normally, wheels and tyres on a high-speed aeroplane like this go through a bit of a bashing. Lightning, for instance, if you got eight good landings out of a set of the lightning tyres, you were doing well. Uh, but they were operating at 330 psi. We were only operating at 220. But uh, the wheels and tyres worked extremely hard. But thanks to Peter's gentle touch, we never, I, don't, I honestly can't remember changing a tyre. Obviously we did, but uh, it wasn't very often. Not like the lightning, which I subsequently dealt with. as say every eight or nine landings you change the tyres. The diameter of the aeroplane was the smallest possible diameter to fit an even engine. And it was the Ie 14 that was in Delta two at the time of the record. 777 seven, seven had the 28. But the... Uh, the fuselage itself um, was tight, and I mean tight in the operative word. We had to winch the aeroplane in on rails, but the rails were quite comfortable from a servicing point of view because if you had any work to do in the fuselage, you just made yourself a seat across the rails and you could spend hours in there with a lead lamp, quite, to- uh, quite um, cosy in fact. In fact, I spent nearly a fortnight in there changing all the grub and the firewires, and I enjoyed it, quite frankly. Not often you can sit down on an aeroplane and work in comfort, but that one we could. The engine itself um, was part and parcel of the aeroplane, literally, as was the tail unit. And in order to take the engine in and out, you had to remove the tail unit. So there was a fair amount of ground equipment involved. The, in fact, it was about a 24-hour job to take the engine out and put it back in again. But having done that, uh, the jet pipe we had one or two strange looks from different people who knew what we were well knew, thought they knew what we were doing or believed that we knew what we were doing to get the jet pipe in um, was very very tight indeed because it's um, a very snug fit to say the least and if you get an aeroplane on jacks it's rather unstable to say the least, if you start ramming a jet pipe in rather hard uh, the, the aeroplane the starts moving around on the jacks and before you know who you are you can lose it so we used to get it in so far and we used to open the eyelids sorry Peter about this but it's, it's quite safe. Uh, open the eyelids, put a piece of 4 before 4 timber across the, the jet pipe and put a, a tourniquet, rope tourniquet, down the carriage, and winch it in that way. <laughs> People used to say, what the devil are you doing? But it was an entirely practical way of doing it. And if nothing else, the British um, servicing crews are practical. The uh, let's get some pictures on the go. Is it that one? No, I think it is. No, that's the other way around. There we go. There we are. That's the, the point we operated from in the in the hangar at Weybridge, in uh, Boscombe Down. This was the big Weybridge hangar that was built, um, built, would you believe, to uh, house the Brabazon. The, the scales inside were positioned so that aeroplanes of the Brabazon size, Brabazon size could be weighed comfortably, and we were stuck up in the corner. Um... We had the Delta-1 in the corner here as well. Uh, it was a very useful place because we were right inside the door and one day when it was really pelting down with rain I actually taxied Peter right in the hangar. He didn't get wet, nor did I so we were quite happy but the health and safety people oh, they wouldn't like things like that. But that uh, was the aeroplane that was our little compound and I like the chain thing but I didn't realize that was there actually that was Jack Vallis' track Jack Pellis was the charge hand. Nice chap, Jack. But um, he used to walk round that aeroplane continually, all day long, round and round and round and round. And in fact, that's why they put the rope barrier up there, just to make sure he didn't stray too far. (laughs) But uh, it was a happy team. There were only about um, ten of us, all told. We had two aeroplanes to look after, and the Delta One. The Delta One didn't fly very often, as you know. And 25 hours was its life, total life, no more than that. Uh, and there was a little chap from ferries called Curly Warworn. Now Curly, um, that was his baby, and all he used to do was polish it. And all oh, incidentally, coming back to polishing, it, it looked very highly polished on there. Someone in ferry aviation, and I won't thank him for this, went to the King's flight, or the Royal flight, and said, um, you know, your aeroplanes are very highly polished. How do you do it? Wadpole, old boy, Wadpole. Oh, And I think Perry Aviation brought up the entire stock of the factory. It's not a very big aeroplane, but believe me, when you start polishing it, it is a very big (laughs) aeroplane. So, uh, anyway, that was our rather untidy compound. Wrong way. There we go. This photograph is the only photograph that exists of the aeroplane immediately after the record. and This uh, was taken at 9 o'clock on Monday morning, as we Started work on, and by midday it had been completely stripped out. It's not a very good photograph. It's not particularly clear. Blame the photographer for that. Sorry, Jack. It wasn't it wasn't Jack. <laughs> he was so interested in getting in the picture, that that's him crouched there in the front there, that he didn't focus it too well. But never mind. But I put this picture up for that. Was the the, the crew that we were, we had operating? Some of the um, RAF people are. are on the picture as well, in the picture as well, plus some of the the test and the instrumentation crew. But that picture is the only picture that identifies that aeroplane because if you look um, about uh, three feet back from the nose, there's a little round light. That light was the calibration light, which Peter will tell you about when uh, he shows you, um, which was used to calibrate the airspeed indicator uh, and the alt- the altimeters on this aeroplane, because it is extremely, extremely well calibrated. John Inglesby was a man at Boscombe Down who was tasked with calibrating the uh, instrumentation. And uh, I always remember he had a, an enormous great manometer. Oh, it must have been about eight feet tall, full of water, which he was doing all his very fit, kind calibrations with. And um, he went from suction to pressure with the, the pipe on the peter head at the front, And if you see an altimeter with a water level coming up its face like that, (laughs) he was not a a very popular man believe me, because we had something we never had to do normally, dry out an ASI system. And we had to dismantle everything, change all the instrumentation and um, uh, dry the pipes out until we can get back and start all over again. But to see an altimeter like that with a water level coming up that defies description. So but that's, that'll come back in another part of the story in a minute. This is the um, picture that was taken ostensibly after the record. As I said before, the aeroplane came in at uh, 9 o'clock. By midday, it was completely shut down. The following Thursday, someone at Boscombe Down decided that we'll get the local press in to take some photographs of this marvellous little aeroplane and the crew. And um, so we did. But the aeroplane was all completely dismantled. So I got some paint remover and took the seven off, the rear fuselage, and painted the four on. And that's the airplane you see. <laughs> seven seven four, but it hasn't got the little round light at the front by the front. So it proves that the airplane is a fake. <laughs> but the point is that airplane could have taken the record in exactly the same way. In fact, after the on the Monday morning group, we kept it so secret, one of the airmen came up to me and he said, um, is this the aeroplane that, um, yes, uh, well, how did you do that? Well it, did, well, it did make a film of it. Oh, yes. Well, how did it do that? So, well, see the other aeroplane there? We put a camera in the rear the brake parachute and flew in front. <laughs> oh, so, I must see that when it comes out. <laughs> we shouldn't take the Mickey, but uh, we, we were on a high. We really were, I'll tell you. So, um, And also, uh, the photographer, you can see the condition of the, of the uh, tarmac out there the photographer came up and said, uh, now, will you take, all, take your coats off, please? Peter, in no uncertain terms, told him, when we're on an room, this is how we dress. So, uh, that's where his photographs came from. And there he is again, Peter, with our 777. In fact, on one of the photographs I've seen, underneath his wing, you can see 777. Um, there's a lot made in the press of Peter uh, going to get his world speed rag on an egg. And it's perfectly true. Um, as uh, the story is well known but basically uh, he was getting up too early in the morning, it's too early for breakfast in the, in the county hotel so the night watchman uh, bought a mega and his electric kettle and of course the, the press made a big thing of this so I went down to the county hotel and boned um, an egg cup from them and we made this little um, um, trophy which he's carrying there and there it is <laughs> And we all signed the top, but um, apparently um, Peter was telling me it's getting rather battered. It is rather well, 50 years old, and, and it was only, uh, in fact it was a second egg, because I made this in the morning, and um, got an egg from home, blew the egg and filled it up with plaster of Paris, and it generated so much heat, with the pasta cooling off, that it cracked the egg. So <laughs> this was uh, midday, and we were going to present it that night. So I, when I went home for lunch, went in the, into the kitchen, no eggs. Oh. So I went down, to the, we, had a, we had a couple of chickens there at the time, lifted up an egg, and, it, and there was an egg. And, right, that'll do. So we, it was still hot. And Peter said, is it fresh? I said, well, at one o'clock it was on inside the hen.
5: <laughs> anyway, that's,
11: that's what life's about. Um, we had one of the major problems we had on this airplane was the brake parachute. And it was a, it was a, a problem. Um, as some of you may remember, it came out on on takeoff one day at Farnborough, during the Farnborough show. Now, I fitted that parachute, um, so it was my fault. But basically, uh, the problem we had, the tail cone, which you can see on there, um, is, uh, is jettisoned. And as it comes away from the uh, aeroplane, it drags out the extractor chute and the parachutes and so on. That's how, that's how it works. But... The, uh, the tail cone, when it's put on, you had to put it on, and there were two little um, strips of metal on the side with holes in them, and they had to engage with a little toggle inside that rocked backwards and forwards and locked it in place. And it, you, it was completely blind. The only way we had of, of checking it was putting it on, slamming it back in, and then impact engineering came into it, bashing it from side to side, <laughs> hoping that it would come off. If it came off, we did okay. We went through the motions and did it again. I did that exactly the same thing on takeoff uh, <coughs> this particular day at take with Farber, and uh, it came off just as the unstuck. And um, fortunately, again, uh, at that time, this was after the world speed, after the uh, the crash landing that Peter made, and so therefore, um, prior to that, the fuel tank, collector tank, and the fuselage. Was run with an electrical booster pump, which meant it couldn't deliver enough fuel for reheat at ground level. So we used to have an accident. We had a 500 gallon galvanized iron tank for doing reheat runs out on the on the pen. But during the, um, the the layup, they put in a turbine pump, which meant that Peter had reheat available at takeoff, and uh, he slammed in reheat and. Um, Continued to take our flight quite safely. The parachute jettisoned. But it didn't shear. There's a shear pin in the, in the back there. It's a five, eight diameter copper bar with a hole through it. But that didn't shear. But we had a hell of a job changing the parachute. It looked like a crankshaft. Where it partially sheared. Never mind. So uh, that was the one thing that um, I never did know if they uh, ever fixed it. But um, never mind. It, it, we got around it. I saw it wrong way. Uh, <laughs> now unfortunately the pilots beat us to it on this one, because one of the big problems as I said on this airplane was the engine out 24 hours work, we we had an engine generator, speed generator, RPM generator, go unserviceable, took the engine out, changed the generator put the engine back in, took it all the way up to the airfield uh, for reheat runs and so on, when we got up there, no RPM and they uh, were uh, Dave Crawford, the electrician, said to Harry Shaw, didn't leave the quill drive out, Harry, did you? Old Harry got very stroppy and said, didn't see it on the floor, did you? He said, anyway, we got it back, took it, took the engine out, took the engine out, took the generator off, no quill drive. So that's what we would have liked to have done to Harry Shaw, <laughs> but the pilots beat us to it. So there it is. The aeroplane was a joy to furnish, uh, to, 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 to uh, service. One of the, not major problems we had, but was refueling, was uh, because the wing was so thin, we couldn't just stick an ordinary uh, hose in from the tanker, we would just uh, send out fuel at a pressure, hit the bottom of the, of the wing and spray everywhere. So we had a special adapter made to screw onto the front of a, um, a hose, and it had a Zwicky um, tap on it. And the tap itself had a piece of half-inch pipe, uh, bent round at 90 degrees, sealed at the end with uh, holes drilled radially at the bottom. So we used to feed the fuel in radially into the aeroplane. So refueling time only about 20 minutes I suppose. But one of the, when we went came back from Farnborough, um, prior to going out to, to CASO for the supersonic trials um, we were doing supersonic um, interception trials with the Central Flight Establishment and Peter, I mentioned him this morning, we flew that aeroplane six times in that day. This aeroplane, we, we just flew it. I mean, I mean that. Six six, flying, uh, six flights in the day. were well, not abnormal. Three, four was quite normal. No problem at all. But on this particular instance, we'd had a few uh, fuel distribution problems. Um, we had to drain all of the eight tanks before we refueled to check the amount of residual fuel. So we did that as well as refueling and he still got his six flights in. People said, when does this aeroplane go unserviceable? It didn't. Delta Two was a very successful aeroplane. As uh, John has said, too little, too late. And we missed the boat.
2: Thank you, Norman. The servicing team are often the unsung heroes of operations. It's great to hear that side of the story. Now, for the last of the four presentations, we have Peter Twist, pilot on the record attempt, record achievement. Um, after a military flying career with the Fleet Air Arm during World War II, during which Peter was awarded DSC in Bar, and also during which he became involved in test flying, Peter joined Ferry Aviation in 1946. By October 1954, he was Ferry's chief test pilot and made the first flight on the FD-2. And in, on March the 10th, 1956, he established the new world speed record of 1,132 miles an hour. Peter, could we ask you to tell us a bit about it?
5: Oh,
3: good evening. Having heard all these stories about the FT2, I, I think I should resign straight away. <laughs> Definitely the pilot was not informed of these goings-on. No, it was a very remarkable aeroplane. We, <coughs> we, I was very much envied for having the job of doing a lot of flying on it, and uh, I really coveted the flying job I had. Um, <coughs> I think in the FD-1, which we had been doing a little bit of flying before, was didn't match it in any way. It was, a, in words of so many, uh, limited words, it was an evil little aeroplane. And we were, although we were sorry, it was it was broken up. We were quite glad when the, the chap who had the accident managed to put it out of service for a bit. <laughs> now, the FT-2 is is um, a really good-looking aeroplane, and it flies like it looks. We, we obviously had some minor problems, but um, I can't really say that it was... They were endangering the pilots at all. And anyone who came after me and flew it were all very impressed with me. The, the Farnborough pilots liked it and, and the Boskin pilots liked it. And it was a really first-class bit, bit of gear. I don't know what more I can add to them. You've heard some of the stories. Perhaps if I'd heard some of these things before I flew, I might not have flown it. <laughs> but um, the, the engineers did a fantastic job and um, it, it got the, we it, it achieved the world speed record because it was that sort of aeroplane. We knew that we had to do a lot of separate flights and we knew that we could guarantee to have the aeroplane serviceable and working uh, three or four times a day. I don't think really I can add much more to the, I can congratulate the designers some of whom are here, and the engineers who struggled hard to have it on the line on the day, and um, all did a first-class job. If you've got any specific questions about the aircraft, I'd be delighted to answer them. Yeah, fine.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, all four speakers. Um, We'll now open up to general discussion. Um, Peter and Mick, could you take. We'll need to turn them on. And. like
3: to
12: start the discussion? Um. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Peter Bashford. I was an apprentice between 49 and 54, and in 52, I was in the Firefly drawing office. And I remember people working on, I think it was a fifth or quarter scale flutter models, which I think were driven by five-inch Farber rockets with primitive telemetry, which were to be fired at Aberporth. Did they ever, in fact, fly, and were they successful?
5: <laughs> hey.
2: um, is that to Harold? Yes. Yes.
5: Sorry,
2: yes. Harold, do you do you know anything about some flutter models that were fly- flown at Amberport? Which? Um, there were models to test whether um, wings would flutter. At high speed. was it? Were they supersonic?
12: Anyway. I have really no idea. As I said, I was a humble apprentice and I watched these marvellous, finely detailed little structures being created and all I knew was they were going to be powered with five-inch Farmer rockets and that was all we knew. <laughs> we have no idea. I heard nothing of them because I moved off to the wind tunnel.
9: I think Norman... No, I, <coughs> I, this this? I don't know um, yeah. of any uh, test flying, model flying or anything to find out if there was vibration... I do know that um, one of the senior government advisers was suggesting the possibility of serious vibration. And we took that into account. But I don't know of any tests that were done yeah. to find out.
12: The only man I can remember was, was Dan Wakeford, was the, the, the draftsman. I remember the senior draftsman used to patrol up and down and uh, governing these things. But as I said, I knew nothing more of it. Thank you.
11: Yes, I've got a feeling that the, these, in fact, were tested on the Lark Hill Ranges. Um, the Army fired them for, for the company. Um, I don't know any details about them, because uh, the RE people at, Farm, at Lark Hill, I believe, have now moved <coughs> on. And um, the MOD, particularly on these outstations, are not particularly good at keeping um, <laughs> historical records, as I found in my cast. But, uh, no, I believe they were fired at Lark Hill.
12: Thank you very much.
2: Um, if I could jump in now, Peter, could I ask you a bit, what was the accuracy to which you had to fly the aircraft for the record achievement? I mean, I think you had to hold the height to within a very few tens of meters, didn't you?
3: Yes. Is this working, this Mike? Yes. Um, yes, we had to keep a very close eye on on change of altitude, uh, both um, at the starting of each run and during the run itself uh, that was wasn't all that difficult because the aircraft was moving through the uh, run quite a speed so it really only had uh, uh, a minute and a half perhaps to keep a steady course and it was a remarkably stable aeroplane to be able to do that
2: And did you have um, ground control radar telling you where to go?
3: We had ground control uh, navigationally, but uh, um, we picked this particular course because it was uh, along the south coast of England. and You you can see the complete length of the course from either end (coughs) by just noticing where the sea began and where the land stopped. (laughs) So it was a very easy navigational exercise.
11: Thank you. Can I? Um, can I uh, yeah. One thing I will say about that. Peter won't say this, but um, uh, when you consider the two l- rings in the sky, seven and a half miles up, uh, were only of a fixed diameter, and the variation in altitude between the two flights was only ninety-seven feet. I mean that—that that is real achievement.
2: Question in the front. Uh,
11: John John Hazelwood,
13: very young schoolboy at the time Uh, I remember watching the Pathé News uh, which recorded the record and one of the things that made a big impression was the fact that whereas I think Hawkers and Supermarine had their speed attempts paid for by the government or Ministry of Supply in the case of Fairy the company was actually made to uh, pay for it does my memory serve me correctly?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. John will probably be able to confirm (coughs) that, but I think that is so. Ferries had to put their hand in the pocket.
7: Yeah, they did. I mean, the um, as I said in my little talk, the um, the Ministry of Supply were not very supportive of this effort actually, and ferries did have to pay for quite a lot of things. I think insurance was one of the big factors they had to pay for. They had pay for all the fuel and all that sort of thing that went into it. Um, Yeah, I mean the company had to pay quite a substantial uh, amount of money out for this (coughs) to achieve the record. Which I said, it was quite extraordinary. When you, you know, think what would have happened in France or the United States, and um, I can't imagine any other country sort of charging its, its uh, aircraft industry to actually a, a achieve a, a record of that calibre.
13: I can remember thinking at the time that there's something very rotten at the top, if you know, if you had to pay for it. And uh, I think, in, you know, it seemed to be the case. Yeah, the, yeah it's, it, as you said, it's government should have paid.
7: Well, I, I must admit, I don't really know, you know, <laughs> obviously what, why the Ministry of the Attitude they did, I and mean, we all have various ideas and series about it, you know, why they took that line. But the fact is, they did, yeah. and um, they were really quite discouraging about the whole enterprise.
2: Right. There's a question at the couple at the very back.
7: Thank you, Peter Baker.
11: Did you have any, Peter, any handling problems with the engine when flying supersonic? Such a surge or any restrictions on use of the throttle?
5: Yeah.
3: None that I've, I can remember at all. It worked perfectly throughout. Yeah.
2: Surprise. Another question at the back?
10: Chris? It's this one from Chris, <coughs> Chris Oliva. Uh, thank you very much for paving the way Make my life very much more interesting on Concorde.
5: Uh,
10: <laughs> one of the things that I was puzzled about, what was the trim change like as you went supersonic? Did you, in fact, have to pump fuel from the front to the rear? Well, I'm sure you didn't, but was there much trim change? Virtually my...
3: no, no trim change at all. In fact, um, the, the controls are quite sensitive, and <coughs> any adjustment you had to make to the fore and aft trim, you could hold with few ounces on the stick. Uh, it was remarkably stable.
10: And a follow-up from that, what about the engine intake? That was fixed geometry? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, that. I don't quite know what you mean.
11: Yep. Yes, it was. Yep, it, was yeah. it was fixed geometry.
10: Okay, and so what maximum Mach number was it theoretically capable of absorbing or ingesting? I've mm-hmm. you know, it up some Mach number 1.8, but I don't...
5: What, what
3: Whether any of the RE pilots went beyond that later, I don't know. As far as we were
9: concerned, MAC one
7: point seven. I think Concorde was two point two. I just answer on behalf of how I think the um, it was actually designed to go Mark one point seven, and of course in practice it went slightly faster than that. But, um,
2: that's really a pretty good achievement for such a very simple air intake, isn't it? Because most aircraft will be variable geometry at that sort of mark, or variable geometry intake at that mm. mark now. I think there are a couple of questions in...
10: Thank you.
11: John Thorpe, I'm a Bristol, per- Bristol person, and uh, I wonder why it was decided to convert 774 into the Bristol 221 rather than 777? It would have been nice to have preserved the record-breaker in the original condition. It's a ministry decision, I think you'll find. MLD MOD decision rather than a fair aviation. It would be nice to know why they made the decision, wouldn't it? You can't ask questions like that. <laughs> <laughs>
5: right, there's another question.
12: was twisted. When we built the two wings, the 221, which I was responsible for the wings, um, we had to build two re- wings in plane, but the attachments were staggered. And we did optical checks. We then produced slight twist on the fuselage and a level wing to suit. <laughs> um,
4: Tony? Tony per- Pertner, I was in the MOD. Um, if, if the... Um, Ferry Delta II was taken to convert to the BAC-221. Who owned the aeroplane? Did the MOD own the aeroplane? Yeah. Did they own your own your two Delta aircraft?
7: Um, how did they... Yeah, they, they, they belonged they belong the to the Ministry, yes.
4: They actually belonged yeah. to the MOD. Uh, I mean uh,
7: th- that's why ferries, when we had a lot of problems, they actually had to... Yes, um, get the airplane back from the Ministry to, to, to do the record of Oh, I see. Years. So
4: the you, you built it on MOD money, and you had to borrow it from them to do the
7: yeah, yeah. to do no, it the. Wasn't, um, it wasn't a private venture.
4: Trial. Okay, that, that that's uh, that explains
11: that. Thank you. Uh, both aircraft were allocated to uh, R E Bedford eventually, and flew up there for some two or three years before the two two one
4: was built, but they actually belonged to the MOD. Can I just uh, offer you a, a thought, the Bristol people? Um, I was on the TSR2 project team as the office boy, and when PERT was come, came across from America, this, this um, was it. critical path analysis technique, the uh, Bristol people were using it on the 221. It's a very clever way of, of, of managing projects. And the guy they sent down to Bristol to find out what it was all about was the bloody office boy. <laughs> and that's how... And, and I was not a technician, I was nothing of the sort. Mm-hmm. I was an office boy, and they sent me down to interview the Bristol people about how you do critical path analysis. I thought that was astonishing.
5: <laughs>
2: Question about halfway back. Make, um... Oh,
14: Alistair Christie, I'm a member of the Farnborough branch of the association. I have two questions. Perhaps Harold could answer the first. That is, uh, when you set the limitation of MAC 1.7... Was that because of aerodynamic uh, features, or was it because of the metallurgy of the structure?
7: When you set the limit of one point seven, was that for aerodynamic reasons or chemical
5: reasons
14: or the
11: metallurgy of the airplane?
9: (coughs) Well, he was designed to Mach one point five. The maximum of one point seven was decided more on the airframe than on the aerodynamics. Aerodynamics was very uncertain at that time with some of the top specialists advising the government that um, going through the sound barrier may cause a lot of vibration and possible instability. So our aerodynamicists and our technical office advised on the maximum that we should go for. After the event, I think the aeroplane, without any change, could have gone faster. But the best of our knowledge at that time said not more than
14: 1.7. My second question really is a combination of Harold and Peter, uh, bearing in mind the ratio between the movement of the control surfaces and the small movement of the stick. Was there an element of feel uh, constructed into the control system to give the pilot some sort of natural uh, feel for the airplane?
3: Yes, we did. <coughs> we did have some. Uh, we changed it around a bit as time went on, but there's quite a. Um, Quite a bit of thought and practical effort putting into uh, the both lateral and the four and a half feel and it would have been quite difficult. Would have been quite difficult to um, abuse that. You, you would know, you would know you were at the limit of your uh, controllability by the feel on the stick. Thank you. But, uh,
11: d- uh, d- with materials. Um, I don't know just how much this came into it, but we we all know that uh, Concorde was the stretch X number of inches during normal flight. Uh, The last flight we did at Cazzo, um, Peter landed. It was a filthy morning. It really was quite damp and dark. And uh, he taxied round and made the seat safe, and he got out. And within the wing itself, there was um, an emergency fuel tank, something like 30 gallons to both sides. And I put my arm on the wing, and I physically burnt it. That was uh, kinetic heating uh, built, uh, built up in that aeroplane and it had been retained by the fuel in that tank. And I literally burnt my arm. So uh, the temperature control I, w- I wonder if it was ever gone into. It didn't seem to worry the aeroplane, though.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and
3: the aircraft would only have been flying
5: supersonically
11: for a few minutes to get to that temperature. I don't know. Peter, to this day he's never told me what he was doing.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it was his last slide,
11: and I reckon he put it out over the Bay of Biscuit opened the taps and went for it <laughs> no, they
3: were only
14: minutes in fact there
3: was no um, long period mark
14: my second question really is a combination of Harold and Peter uh, bearing in mind the ratio between the movement of the control surfaces and the small movement of the stick was there an element of feel uh, constructed into the control system to give the pilot some sort of natural uh, feel for the aeroplane?
3: Yes, we did <coughs> We did have some... Uh, we changed it around a bit as time went on, but there was quite a, um, quite a bit of thought and practical effort putting into uh, the both the lateral and the and four-and-a-half feel. And it would have been quite difficult, would have been quite difficult to um, abuse that. You, you, would know, you would know you were at the limit of your uh, controllability by the feel on the stick. Thank you. But,
11: uh, d- uh, d- with materials, um, I don't know just how much this came into it, we, we all know that uh, Concorde was the stretch X number of inches during normal flight. Uh, the last flight we did at Cazzo, Um, Peter landed. It was a filthy morning. It really was quite damp and dark, And uh, he taxied round and made the seat safe, and he got out. And within the wing itself there was um, an emergency fuel tank, something like 30 gallons to both sides. And I put my arm on the wing and I physically burnt it. That was uh, kinetic heating uh, built built up in that aeroplane. It had been retained by the fuel in that tank. I literally burnt my arm. So uh, the temperature control, I I wonder if it was ever gone into. It doesn't seem to worry the airplane, though. And the aircraft
2: would only have been flying supersonically
11: for a few minutes to get to that temperature. I don't know. Peter, to this day, he's never told me what he was doing. (laughs) It was his last flight, and I reckon he put it out over the Bay of Biscay, opened the taps, and went for it. (laughs) They
3: they were only minutes, in fact. There was no. Uh, (laughs) long period market it was part of France which was pretty hot on the ground anyways Uh,
9: David Hyde uh, wonderful memories gentlemen but can you tell us a little more about um, uh, what height, uh, how the speed was measured how many attempts, uh, what endurance the aeroplane had afterwards um, how long how, how many days you were attempting the record and that kind of thing
10: please thank you
3: if you want to. a lot of questions uh, well I think the whole thing, it was less than a week wasn't it was it? three days,
11: three days of flying hmm. Thursday, Friday and the Saturday and several what? flights on a day and There are probably three or four flights in a day there was one flight on the Thursday um, four flights on the Friday and two flights on the Saturday because the uh, on the Thursday we had a vent valve go US and I know how to change the damn thing because, uh, and it was on the side of the runway in a March conditions of weather. It was bloody cold, I tell you, um, to work one-handed down a hole in the side of the fuselage to change the vent valve. But with the result, we only flew once on the Thursday, but four on the Friday, and two on the Saturday. What uh,
3: We were working at about 40,000 feet on the on the runs themselves. Um, pretty consistently then. What sort of endurance did the airplane have? Um, we had about two minutes of fuel left when we landed. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: and I
2: think you had to do two runs in one flight, one in each direction.
3: Yes, that's right. Yes, you climb to altitude, accelerate up to the first run, across the. Uh, uh, along the run itself, and we decelerate um, or come out of, the, uh, turn the reheat off, while we turn round to save fuel, and then um, wind it up again, turning the reheat on, and cancelling again as soon as you completed the first run, and headed for Boscombe as soon as possible.
5: <laughs>
3: we had plenty of energy, so we were able to, to descend at virtually no power, but um, we had to keep a little bit in reserve in case there was a a go-round a cane situation uh, before landing.
11: There's about 30 gallons of fuel left in the collector tank.
7: If if I I could just add one thing to this. I don't know how many of you have actually seen the film, which the four-figure flight film which Jack DeConnick produced. What's very noticeable is when the aeroplane launches on a record attempt, it goes off the runway. There's no taxi, start up, bang, Hmm. it goes straight off.
3: We used to refuel at the uh, end of the runway before we took off. We didn't, no texting, and, and when we landed, it didn't matter so much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> then I think there were theodolites at each end of the, photo theodolites at each end of the runway, uh, filming the aircraft to get the timing.
10: And how was the
2: height recorded? Was that uh, on-board equipment, or were the theodolites measuring that as well?
3: Yeah, I think it was all on yeah, board. So
11: barometric uh, uh, capsules yeah. in, in specially sealed Special containers, cameras. which were actually sealed by the, um, the judges, FII right. judges um, and unsealed when they landed. In fact, the boxes were taken away, which is why we um, we didn't know that we actually got the record until, uh, until Sunday. And then it was only pure luck, really, because, um, as you all know, that when a kettle steams, uh, the condensation doesn't start from the nozzle, the spout of the kettle. There's always a little dead gap, um, and that gap was the salvation of our record, because they picked up the end of the contrail and the better dead area. So there's obviously an aeroplane just in front of it, and on the strength of that, plus the F.A.I. Uh, inspectors who were checking it, we got the record. Common sense it worked.
1: Rod Kirkby, former project feasibility engineer. Um, Question for Peter. I remember you told me, Peter, that on the turn you were doing something like 45 to 55 degree bank and that was with reheat switched off. So presumably you must have scrubbed off a lot of speed on that turn before you then had to accelerate again. Can you remember roughly what sort of speed you would have got down to before you relighted the engine? Yes, no, we went
3: on the first Having done the first run, and turned out to sea to turn round, we went subsonic.
1: Oh right, right down to subsonic.
3: So you we were um, saving quite a bit of fuel. Of right. uh, well, the turn, probably, I suppose it probably took a minute and a half, two minutes. Right. But you couldn't afford to be reheating through that.
1: Yeah. So, but it's a lot of speed to build back up again. In fact. Yeah. The, right. Thank you. But of course,
2: with the lower speed, you could get a tighter radius turn. Right. I remember flying in a Concorde, and uh, at Mark II, having a turn radius that must have been over
5: 100
2: miles. <laughs> <laughs> we, we turned from going west over the Bristol Channel to east over the Channel Isles, with about 45 degree bank all the way around.
11: Regarding fuel consumption, the engine we were using in Delta II was the same engine as in the Lightning, basically, although there were two of them in the Lightning. And we used to reckon, as a rule of thumb, the uh, fuel consumption of a reheated Avon engine in the Lightning was 5,000 gallons an hour. And
2: 300
11: gallons in the <laughs> That was at sea level. But I remember one day we had an emergency, we had to get a Lightning back in a bit sharpish and he was doing circuits around the airfield in full reheat, both engines, um, so that he, would take, he could actually get to his landing weight something like three or four minutes after he took off. <laughs> now you know who pays for the bills. <laughs> I'd, I'd be
2: interested to know why the, uh, the drooping of the nose forward of the cockpit was
3: inadequate, because obviously that would have been a lot easier.
7: Yeah, you, you, you said initially you would droop the nose in front of the cockpit, didn't you? the first proposal. Why did that not work? <coughs> How did it work? Hmm? But then you <coughs> the whole cockpit in the end, did
9: I don't, get, don't see what he's
7: after. Well... Um,
3: why...? Um, because
2: it, it would have been more technically easier to droop the nose ahead of the cockpit rather than include the cockpit in the drooping section. Right. Why didn't just drooping the bit <coughs> ahead of the
9: cockpit work? Well, because drooping the nose in front of the cockpit, yeah. the pilot would be up in this attitude, right? Oh, I trying see. to look down at the runway. Yeah. <coughs> Whereas with the moving the cockpit as well, if you had a direct view. Right. <coughs> so
10: it was
2: really the ergonomics of getting the pilot vision right.
10: Oh, yes. Mm.
14: <coughs> um, question
1: uh, Tony we were very surprised to get this contract to build a high speed research aircraft and who, who were the competition
7: it's difficult to say well they were surprised a lot because the sort of people who would have been <coughs> to, to have uh, um, <coughs> tender for the contract in the first place really not many of them are with us now um, I think the, uh, the other people were well, hawkers. Hawkers, it? right? They
3: yeah, were the people. hawkers. People. Mm-hmm.
7: And of course the, the P1B. I mean, the, the Lightning was also, or well, not, the, the original P1 was also a, um, a response to this uh, tender. At the time, Ferry was busy,
5: building the which was a rather different Well,
7: yeah, I, I, I think it's true to say that because the gannet came under this sort of super-priority program, which was instituted when the Korean War broke out. All the work on the research aircraft slowed right down, which is one reason. I think you started work on the, um, on the FD2 in about 1950, 51, didn't you?
9: The serious design work, yeah. early, f- right at the beginning of 1950.
7: Yeah. yeah, but then it never actually flew until 1954. <coughs> and I think there was a similar delay in the gestation <coughs> of the FD1 as well.
4: Tony? <coughs> So may I offer you a thought there uh, on the back of that question? When you look at the uh, experimental aircraft that were uh, in Cosford now, all the features that go into the uh, the advanced aircraft were separately researched, like the Lightning Wing platform, like the HP-115, wasn't it, for the, the slow speed handling of the Concorde wing and so on. And I just, I just had the impression that the MOD... or the, the, Farmer at that time would get somebody to build their next experimental aeroplane. Uh, I wasn't sure that that, that that they were they went out to tender for the things. I, I wouldn't have expected that. I would just have expected them to say, "Who would like to build our delta wing?" What about all those things that the, there was a Bolton Paul aircraft, the the Avro 707s uh, led to the Vulcan and so on. And I got the impression that Farmer was actually getting stuff built and flown just to see what happened. Does does that, does that match with what you think?
11: Well, um, purely from the research point of view, because historical research is the thing I do <coughs> best of all, um, it transpires that uh, Fairies were approached on the back of the Fd1 because of the they um, uh, they uh, the, the, the had the information from Barkham in Germany, the Barkham Natter, which was the principle which was developed, sort of thing into the into Delta one. Fairies were asked if they could produce the supersonic version. Of the FD1, so so uh, reference uh, research has, has shown us. But if you take um, if you look at the um, serial numbers of all the airplanes of the time, and the, these are quite important. Uh, they're not just numbers for collecting people. They they mean something. When a, a contract is issued, a serial number is issued at the same time. And if you take the P1A and the SB5 and the ferry delta 2, you find all those numbers was it 760, 768 uh, 774, 777 they were all issued within the same almost probably on the same day so it seems that there was a, an overall decision taken somewhere up there to produce a whole range of aeroplanes out of which came the Lightning and the Delta 2
4: Can I ask you a thought about tail numbers? because I. Had to get the tail numbers for the TSR2 prototypes,
5: uh-huh.
4: and I had, to, I had to go and see a lady in Saint Giles Court called Mrs. Mrs. Arney, I think, and she had a book, yeah. and I went and collected X tail numbers for the TSR2s,
5: mm.
4: and uh, I would have thought that the numbers for the experimental airplane came from the same lady in the same book, and it's just it, 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 and that book almost got thrown away. I think it's in an archive somewhere, and I, I don't think it was any any better than that. I, as the office boy for TSR-2, I was sent up to get some numbers that could be painted on the rear fuselages. Yes. And, and that's it. I don't think there's anything more mysterious in it than that. Well, no, I think you're probably right. It's as
11: basic as that. But I think you'll find that uh, contractually, when a contract is issued, they go to that little lady and say, can I have a batch of numbers? Oh,
4: so- sorry, no, um, I don't think so, because the, the TSR-2 had already been in... in uh, they were manufacturing <laughs> it, and I was sent to get the numbers... Mm when they'd almost got the aeroplanes ready, because they needed something to paint on the fuselage. So it wasn't... the numbers weren't issued with the contract. (laughs) They were were thought of a bit later, when you needed them, I I believe.
11: Well, I think you'll find at the time, uh, we're talking the 50s here. Uh, This is a way in which um, they they were... Because if you go into the... uh, Serial numbers have have an important part to play within the aircraft history. And if you go in, there are several um, examples of this happening. That the serial number has appeared with a date and it date relates to the specification that was issued at the same time. did it?
10: At what stage did the rules change for the airspeed record, which had to be Undertaken at very low level, uh, was the Ferry delta to the first high level speed record? I can see somebody nodding his head. Yes,
11: because the the one before that was the hunter, and the swift out in Tripoli were doing at zero feet along the front of Tripoli, and um, the super saber. They were no, they were, it was about um, seven hundred miles an hour. Uh, memory, memory, memory. Eight hundred. Me. It, it was. It was. Not much less than the um, subsequent record that the F-100 um, held that we took.
10: So, what altitude did the, was the American record?
11: I don't know. I personally don't well, know. Uh,
7: well, it, it, it must have been at high altitude. I mean, the thing was supersonic. Yes. We couldn't have been doing that within hundred feet. Well, exactly. Weeks. Yes. So it must have been. I think I was probably well, the, the, the first at uh, the high level. The
11: American eight record was 820, 822. 822. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So What's it was supersonic. supersonic. But um, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that any attempt has been made since the Delta II record to achieve a, an ultimate world speed record. I think I'm right in saying that.
7: We well, haven't discussed about Airplanes that Aeroplanes
11: have flown yeah. faster than that, yes, yeah. but not under record conditions. So
10: it's, it's the retrieval of one of the Apollo astronauts mm. that, break, <coughs> that holds the world airspeed record. Well,
7: sorry, I, can't, I actually hesitate to correct norm, but I think that the FT2 lost the record to a voodoo, which set it at about Could 1,200 be, yes, miles an hour. Yeah, I, don't know. I think that was would have been done under the same conditions. Yeah. It took them several attempts, but they got there in the end. Yeah, I see. And then,
10: in the in your opinion, why was the unwisdom of Duncan Sands' 1957 white paper allowed to happen? I know you're going to say something or other, politicians, but can you the unwisdom of that was so glaring. Why do you think it happened?
7: Sorry, you, you, you first unwis- of all said well, why was it allowed to happen, and then say why did it happen? Well, the answer, they, uh, we, we, sorry. So, well, I mean, who would stop it happening? I mean, you know, there's no way. Well, that's very
10: true. I suppose.
7: gone through Parliament. I mean, they, they can't be stopped. That, that's the supreme authority. Who
10: advised him, such that
7: hmm.
10: the white paper was published? Someone with a cash in mind, I expect.
7: Mm-hmm. I, I know, it, it, it was a very extraordinary theory, because the idea was that all this work was going to be done by guided weapons. I mean, Sands himself had actually been an artillery officer, but I imagine that's purely coincidental. But that was the um, flavour of the month. Thank you. And we all know how disastrous, no, no other country went down that
8: road. Hello, uh, my name's McKenna, I've taken an interest in various um, records and so on, and after the Ferry Delta, there were another eight aircraft, according to the Guinness Book of Records, which uh, were, were recorded as breaking the speed record, I don't know what, under what circumstances, but the uh, the next one was, the, the next aircraft was um, McDonald F-101A, United States, followed by several from the United States, and uh, a Russian one, the Nikoyan, mm. and then eventually the last record recorded is the SR-71A in um, about 1976. But were they under FAI conditions? I, I assume they were. They're in the Guinness Book of Records.
11: Yes, but I mean, that, that may be the they're ultimate um, speed that they've no, achieved. No, no, as as under
8: record conditions? No, they're listed as records recording back from before the First World War. Yeah. And... Um, it's quite interesting. In fact, i copied it, and I've got a graph here. Yeah. There's the
11: various records. I could leave this with you, if you wish. I'd better check that one out, because uh, yeah. I'm, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I realise there's a field of uh, reference here that I need to do more delving, and I'll certainly do, I'll do that. Thank you.
0: I may be able to check on that. And that uh, I'm pretty sure that the Russians had to rerun the mig 25. Records numerous times before they were confident enough to get the FAI in to actually verify them. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, they had similar problems the frustration of not being able to get the administrators in um, and eventually having to settle for doing a record slightly less advantageously, Mm. Um, with everything stripped out, of course. Um, But I think they did have um, ratified records up to the MiG 25.
2: Uh, Bill Tyack, back to uh, Duncan Sands. I just happened to be, by coincidence, reading last night that Duncan Sands was a uh, battery commander at Aberforth during the Second World War, uh, where he was involved in rocket firing and a lot of the experimental work on rockets for the artillery. And the author's suggestion was that it was that experience which put in his mind the advantage of rockets, despite the opposition of Lord Cherwell.
11: You could say the signs of time are running out.
2: Um, Could I ask one question to wind up the discussion? Um, After the um, record achievement, um, what, I mean, clearly the FD2 um, proved the value of the 60 degree delta, as, as the French particularly showed. And one of the post-FD2 projects looked to me remarkably like the Avro Arrow in Canada, big delta, high-wing delta. Um, what uh, research work was done with the aeroplane for Farnborough and Boscombe um, before it became the uh, Bristol 221? Was it doing basic aerodynamic work?
3: I don't know. I don't know.
11: That was all done at Bedford, uh, RE, or RE Bedford, and Boscombe Down certainly weren't involved in that side of it. Although they did, they, they flew twice, uh, Rig flew it and um, Bird Wilson flew it on two occasions, and they were the only service pilots that flew it, uh, other than Peter and uh, Gordon Slade. Fine,
2: thanks. Um, ah, sorry, we do a question in the middle.
13: Tony G., um, just the mention of Lord Charwell uh, r- reminds me that, um, in fact, Sand's early experiences with rockets—he uh, was charged with assessing the then new-found evidence of the V2 during World War II. Uh, you can see this in both R.V. Jones's uh, book *Most Secret War* and on a recent um, biography by Fort on uh, Lord Charwell, Charwell, called *The Prof*. Thanks.
2: Thank you. I—I think. Harry, we'd probably better... Come. Okay. Just
3: one comment. Uh, you asked um, what uh, they did with the FD2 after uh, the record attempt. But well, one thing I do know about is they tried to measure thrust and hence get drag from it. That was a, a, a very big exercise and quite successful. That They did that at bit.
2: Thanks very much, Harry. I think we're going to have to wind up the discussion now. Could I thank all four speakers for absolutely wonderful insight into the, into a real aviation achievement that we can all be proud of, um, Michael. Could I ask Michael Oakey, um, who, uh, to whom the credit for arranging this evening lies, he's done all the organisation, I'd like to thank him very much for that, and could I ask him to
1: propose a vote of thanks? Well, um, Kit said, our chairman Kit Williams said at the start of this evening that this was going to be a celebration of the speed record. Um, And it has been a celebration. It's been terrific to see a virtually full house here. Um, And our speakers have have shown how the record was achieved, against the odds, with not much of support from officialdom at all. And um, they've also shown... (coughs) How the colossal potential of the FD2 just really went unrealised, at least on this side of the English Channel. But that doesn't detract at all from what was a breathtakingly successful effort. And tonight it's been a, a privilege to hear about it, first from the son of the company founder, and then 50 years on from the very people who were involved in making history. So gentlemen, a heartfelt thanks And um, we're going to finish with a commercial, but I assure you it's in a very good cause. The, the co-author <coughs> of this book, The Speed Saga, Peter Davison, is just going to say a few words about it.
0: All right, good evening. Um, thank you for the interest already expressed in this on- overdue book celebrating the FD2 and the 221. Um, I only got involved in this book about five years ago when I was at the Science Museum, where we own the one that's at Yarlton. Um And uh, Henry Matthews from the Lebanon uh, takes great pride in bringing prototypes of all nations <coughs> to the printed book um, at virtually his own expense. So the whole stock of these is still in the Lebanon, which is where they're printed and where Henry works. He's an expat. Um, so there aren't, isn't a pile here for you to order or buy tonight. Um, but uh, just a few thanks to the people who've helped do this, especially on a night when we celebrated Archive. The Science Museum owns the aeroplane and kept enough records for me to be able to fill in the gaps in the flight history for Henry. Uh, the Imperial War Museum was... Uh, brave in looking after the pictures of the RAE <coughs> available some of the pictures. The RAF Museum made available their extensive records of particularly Henderson's test pilot notes, which allowed us to contribute to it. Um, and of course uh, 777 is at Cosford. Again, they did their bit. Um, in these days when National Archives can't actually justify buying and producing their own books, it's nice to know that somebody like Henry out there is willing to put his time into it um, and uh, the book, the information is made available providing we do our right thing and preserve that information for the record. Um, If anybody wants to order this book, it's available by internet Um, there is a flyer, there was one which has already disappeared, there is a flyer outside on the table, it's basically Henry Matthews publications and if you search for that on the web you'll find him Um, and you can order, I think it's £21 for the book um, and it will give you the full flight history and hopefully a 95% accurate story of what happened from engineers and mechanics (laughs) through to uh, stories of the, the flight testing at Bedford and everywhere else. So I commend the book to you Um, thank you for your interest tonight, and thank you to all the people that allowed us to celebrate um, what goes into this book, and let's hope there's more books that celebrate British um, enterprise in the years to come. Thank you.
1: And finally, can I also just say um, we've got ten copies of this book that have been signed by all four speakers. Um, We're going to put them into a, um, a postal and I think, uh, internet auction fire Aeroplane Magazine, which I have the honour to edit. So please keep an eye on that. Probably in the September issue, there'll be details of how to get hold of a signed copy. Thanks very
5: Thank
1: much. I'm sorry, it's, absolutely. It's going to a very good cause, the Test Flying Memorial Project, which uh, is something we set up a few months ago. Uh, the aim being to um, create a role of honour and hopefully a monument at Farnborough to all the test pilots and test aircrew who lost their lives in the line of duty in the last hundred years or so. Thank you very much.
2: And a final um, commercial for the historical group's next lecture, which is on Wednesday the 11th of October, when Professor Keith Hayward will be talking about the Freddie, Freddie Page memoirs which he is currently editing for the Society. And it promises to be a fascinating lecture. I'm not sure whether it'll challenge this evening, but I'm sure it'll be very, very good. And I hope to see you there. Thank you again, everybody.